This program and its online content contains audio and information about traumatic events that may be triggering to those who have experienced something similar. It may also be unsuitable for younger listeners. Welcome to Migration Trail, the project that uses maps, data and audio to join the dots of a story spread across Europe and beyond. In the last episode, we talked about the situation in Greece, about how more than 50,000 people have been stuck there since the Balkan route closed and the EU-Turkey deal came into effect. But Italy is also housing large numbers, more than 190,000, a great number of whom were rescued at sea while crossing from North Africa. Ibrahima, who is from West Africa and whose story we've heard in previous episodes, was one of those. He was forced to leave his home when he was held responsible for a large sum of money his boss had run off with. He made his way to Libya to work, but once there, he was cheated and robbed at gunpoint countless times and decided to pay a smuggler to get him to Italy. He wound up in a rubber boat with 117 other people, and after three hours at sea, they were rescued and transferred to a ship that took them to Palermo in Sicily. In Palermo, you know, we were at the emergency camp and they don't allow us to go out. We have to stay, so it's only inside that place. We were in the, our rooms, just under a tent, a big tent. Up to, up to thousand people, it was a big tent. Everybody is giving a number. Yes, they will call your number, then you come out, get into the bus. Ibrahima was then taken to another camp in Foggia, about 300 kilometers southeast of Rome. Now in our room is 12 people, and other places you have more than that, and other places you have lesser than that. Yes, the camp is, is big. You have different nationalities. All men, there's no female. There's no female in camp, all men. Once Ibrahima arrived at the camp, he started his asylum procedure. Yeah, you will go for fingerprint, but you have to go to the psychology first. From the psychology, and you will meet the lawyer, then you will be going for... Interview. There's a visit with a psychologist, then there's the initial interview, the fingerprinting, and a meeting with a commission that asks detailed questions, your full name, where you're from, why you came. They're looking for consistency or inconsistency in your story. You know, then you explain your reason in that reason, in that story, they ask you questions in that story. It depends on what your story is about. Once they've applied for asylum, migrants in Italy get a soggiorno, or a six-month resident permit. They're allowed to travel around, but there are limitations. You are not allowed to go out for more than three days. If you don't mark your ticket for more than three days, your camp will be cut off from you and you'll be not having no right in the camp, you know. So really, the only thing Abrema can do is wait. At this point, it had been 10 months since he arrived in Italy. Abrema's not the only one who's waiting. He's in a camp with hundreds of other men who are also waiting to hear if their asylum has been approved or if they'll be deported. So there's a lot of tension. People with different nationalities together in the same room. You know, you know, there will not be easy peace there. You know, 
somebody opening the door is saying that it's hot other one is saying that it's cold so always violence always violence you know you put your phone there you walk to the seat you know somebody picked it up they can't even communicate together well the other guys are from mali nigeria you have gambia senegal it's different languages so there's language barriers you know before you understand what i mean you would punch me so it's like that it's not easy you cannot just lay your things like that you know, somebody will pick it and put it in his pocket and all those things it's not a proper life not a proper life but you have to cope with it you have to you have to there is no other way the procedure for applying for asylum may seem straightforward fill out this form get fingerprinted go to this interview with the commission wait for a decision but it's often strange to be in another culture and dealing with its bureaucracy something which can be enough of a headache in your own country abdul rahim who's from Ghana and who we heard from in earlier episodes, sometimes found it a bit difficult to understand the logic. To live in, in somebody's country, especially Europe, you need legal documents. You need documents that prove that you are what you told them when you go to commission. You are what you said when you are taking, about, uh, when you are taking your thumbprint, your fingerprint, anything. But if you don't have documents, they don't recognize you in, in, in Italy. What I see here is very, very strange. So all of us, some of us in the camp, we are just thinking how we're going to be when we go to a commission. How we're going to end up? Are you going to get the documents and still search for a job? Or uh, they, are going to, they are not going to give us documents? and ask us to leave their country, you see, so we don't know what to do. Like in Greece, the waiting takes a psychological toll, and without documents, you can't work or rent a place to live. The people are seeking for help, that is why they are here, they are seeking for help. Help them, give them documents, give them jobs, so that we know what to what we are, we know what to do the next. Yeah. We need job that job that will fetch us some money, fetch us something that we will be able to cater for our family. They are wasting our time. Time is going. The whole reason Abdul Rahim left Ghana was to earn more money to support his wife and son, something he couldn't do back home. But now he's made it to the EU, he finds himself in the same position. For now, anyway. While he waits to hear if his application has been approved, he gets a €75 per month allowance. It's not much, but when he can, he sends some of it home to his wife. You have this whole issue that asylum seekers are not allowed to work, so they're castigated for being lazy benefit scroungers at the same time as being unable to be anything else except by working irregularly, which then means that they're... Katie Long is a writer on migration and refugee issues. There's, there's, I mean, I think there's a very compelling case for saying that if your claim hasn't been heard in, say, three months, six months, you should be eligible for a work visa. Um, and that's what Sweden do. I mean, Sweden allow um, asylum seekers to work. And in fact, if your claim fails as an asylum seeker, but you found a job at a certain salary level and you can show that you're, you're contributing to the Swedish labour market, you can actually apply then to, to be allowed to stay as a migrant rather than as a refugee. 
Um, so, you know, I mean, I think there are there are so many ways in which you could imagine a system that worked better. And people want to move to, say, London because it's got a big diaspora who can help people set themselves up and can provide family and emotional support and networks and jobs. And, you know, and, and actually that's part of successfully integrating. Whereas if you plop a group of people somewhere where there is, you know, no support network whatsoever, which is pre-existing and no, you know, you're setting it up to be harder for them to succeed in terms of integration. Under the current system, not only are asylum seekers not allowed to access their own networks, which might actually take the strain off the system, but the system's idea of how to determine who a refugee is has become more stringent as well. A study by the French anthropologist Didier Fassin looked at the extent to which one had to prove injuries in order to claim asylum. And how much it had become both a medicalised procedure and then you sort of had to show kind of physical evidence of torture it wasn't enough to be persecuted you had to sort of increasingly have some kind of physical evidence of it or and, and this idea that we're kind of escalating ever more the, the kind of level of vulnerability to really count as someone genuine and 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 that I think is yeah it's it's really problematic the vulnerability narrative is also a problem she says because it takes a lot of energy determination and emotional strain to make a trip like this the journey is an unpredictable combination of constant movement and long waits where it's unclear what the outcome will be. Abdur Rahman, a student from Syria who we've been following in this series, was travelling the Balkan route with several other members of his family in the summer of 2015 when hundreds of thousands of other people were doing so as well. Things often got chaotic and family members were often separated from each other. Actually, we, we all of us uh, got on the train. Then suddenly, the police were uh, getting uh, people out. So they got uh, my two brothers and uh, my cousin. The train uh, took off, and they stayed there uh, all night. They had. We. They eventually found each other again and managed to cross into Serbia via a steep mountain path. And uh, then we arrived to the village. Uh, then they took us to a camp, the worst camp ever. So we waited for a whole day, standing. So uh, after waiting a whole day for papers, we didn't get them. So in the night, about 12 o'clock, we took a, a minibus for all of us and came to Belgrade. We stayed in a hotel for one night. And we were waiting... Uh, for the smuggler, he said he will take us from here uh, at about seven o'clock in the night. Then we ha have to cross uh, the Hungarian borders. We never saw Abdurrahman en route again, but we did stay in touch with him, and we caught up with him recently to fill us in on what happened next. By this time, we were traveling in groups. There were these guys with us. And they knew smugglers, more, more costly than usual. But yeah, it was the only option available, so we took it. We paid, and they took us with a car to the forest where we have to start walking to the Hungarian borders and cross it. That was the worst part, like, 
the Hungarian forest were worse than the sea because it was completely dark. We were like 50. We got to the forest at night before the long walk. There were people waiting also. Uh, they do that, they get people in groups and take them at once. And we had to like uh, throw everything away, like all our clothes, everything that could make a sound like plastic bag or pack bag. We were uh, holding uh, each other's bags and the smuggler was in front of me and I couldn't see him, I was just following his lead. And they were really mean, like, they weren't the nicest people. And uh, we walked like uh, four or five hours. And it would rain and stop and rain and stop. And uh, the soil was sand-like, so it became harder to walk. The worst thing is to be, be to get caught by the Hungarian police or uh, border police because like uh, they're not they're also not the nicest people and they would detain you in a prison and uh, they might force you to fingerprint there and uh, uh, ask for asylum like they would force you and then would, they would let you go. But by the time they would let you go, you already had uh, your fingerprint in Hungary, so you can't ask for asylum in any other European countries. Yeah, but luckily we didn't get caught. And there was this Iraqi woman, and uh, she couldn't hold her kids for that much long, so there was guys helping her. but. Uh, you can't see anyone actually, so uh, at some point uh, she missed her son and she couldn't find him like for 10 minutes and like she was going crazy and panicked. The woman's son was eventually found, but communication was limited and no one was really sure what would happen next. They barely spoke English and when uh, we arrived at uh, some point where you leave the forest and you take a car, it would be fifth, six people, and there would be eight or nine, and they would stuck you in the, in the package. <laughs> and uh, they drove us, and you don't know if they are driving you in, uh, in Hungary, and you still get caught by the police, so you're still anxious and worried about it. And uh, they left us in the cars, for two hours without uh, the drivers like and they didn't tell us what they were what they were doing or anything like and the car was locked and <laughs> that's when you start getting panic like you don't you don't know anything and you're locked in a car so some guys uh, tried to i don't know how they got to open the window and they got out and they found the smugglers waiting on the highway for the police patrols to go away. It would have been much easier if they had said that. <laughs> you'd start thinking that they left you uh, in a locked car, like you'd see in the news.
The general assumption in much of the West is that most of the people who leave their countries are trying to get to Europe. But that's not really the case. Some want to stay as close to home as possible. Lots of Syrians, for example, are in Lebanon and Jordan, although life there can be difficult. Many are stuck in camps, which they thought would be temporary, but are looking increasingly long-term. And Turkey is currently the country in the world hosting the most refugees, 3.2 million. 2.8 million of them are from Syria. That's many more than have made it to the EU. But Shari, a taxi driver in Izmir, a city on the west coast of Turkey, says the Syrian population there is split. There's two groups of people. One group is coming here and they have in their mind to go abroad to Europe. And that group still want to go to Europe. And the other group, no, they, they make a life, they rent a house and they start a job. They are working here, but they are not attending to go to Europe anymore. They have a life now, a stable life. Hussein is part of the second group. He's a Syrian working for a Turkish barber in Izmir, and he has no plans to go to Europe. He prefers to stay in a country where he can speak the language, he says, a place where he's familiar with the culture and its practices. In Europe, he says, he'd be forced to go to school to learn a new language and about how to behave in that culture. In addition, he'd be told where to live and may have to work at a job not of his choosing or wait a long time for paperwork to go through. By staying here, he has more freedom to do what he wants. Although not everyone feels that they can live so comfortably in Turkey. It's not just in Europe that people who've left their homes are stuck in limbo. Technically, the 2.8 million Syrians in the country can access housing, healthcare and education. But wages are often low, making it difficult to support oneself, even as a single person. It's now much more difficult to enter Turkey. New visa restrictions have been put in place and they've constructed a wall along the border with Syria. There are also concerns about human rights violations, whether Turkey really is a safe country for all those there. But still, with so many refugees in Turkey, could what happened in 2015 happen again? Because even the resettlement programme that was part of the EU-Turkey deal is not functioning very well. Polly Pallister-Wilkins specialises in humanitarian intervention and border control. And it's like, oh, they can apply from Turkey and they'll be resettled and it will stop them making their risky journeys. It's not happening. It's just not happening. So, because, I mean, the backlogs of even to get a UNHCR interview in Turkey are huge. I mean, you're waiting. I mean, the last statistics I saw, I don't know how accurate these are, but you'd be waiting five years for an interview. You know, there are so many people. So if you have children who are five, six, seven years old who need to go to school... You will, you will move and you will go to Greece. Because at least in Greece, even if your children don't have refugee state or whatever, the sort of universal declaration on the rights of the child and actually European Union law, human rights law, which says that every child must have access to education, your children will, will go to school. So, of course, you will make that trip, right? Because you want your children to have access to education. Um, and you won't stay in Turkey. So, and you won't stay and sit in Turkey and wait to maybe possibly... Uh, some kindly bureaucrat in some northern European country will agree to, for you to be resettled. It could be, you could be waiting 10 years 
And by this point, your children have had no education. But some families are torn between staying in Turkey and going to Europe. Amal is a Palestinian mother of four, whose children range from 13 to 20. I live in Syria all my life. I'm married since 20 years ago. I have four children, uh, two daughters and two sons. My big daughter, she lives in Germany now, and also my son. They live in Germany. They go last uh, year. Amal and her children left Syria when it became clear there was little chance of a future there. She travelled overland to Istanbul, and the journey was not an easy one. Amal was told it would take a day to get over the border, maybe two. I spent 15 days at the road with my children from town to town until I, I arrived to Turkey. Walk, bus, car, like this. From town to town, Raqqa, Hazaka, Ladiqiyya, Libbo, Idlib, all the town. Every town I arrived to the town and they told me the border is closed, sorry. So I moved to another town, 15 days. Without food, without water, without anything, without money also. All the time I borrow the money. Because the man told us, next day you will be in Turkey. You don't have to take anything. So I go, but it's not two days, two days, it's 15 days until I arrive to here. We come to Turkey to go to another land like European, like German or Swede. But when we came, we spent a lot of money in the road because it's very expensive. All people take our money all the time. So we haven't nothing when we came and we didn't have uh, any chance or hope. So I decided to borrow some money and uh, let my son go alone in the boat. After a few months, my daughter also and uh, my husband, he stay in Syria until now. Amal's oldest son and daughter both made it to Greece in a boat and are now in Germany, but not together. They live in separate towns. She has a meeting scheduled with the German consulate in Turkey in a few weeks, a meeting that took her 10 months to get. But she's out of money and doesn't know how to get her husband to Turkey in time for the meeting, which would involve finding and hiring a smuggler. And I don't know what I should be doing, actually. Because it's expensive if he decides to come to Turkey, he will come a regular way. And many people die every day in the border. So how can I invite him to come to show his meeting? I don't know what I can do. Maybe I should ask a lawyer, but also I didn't have the money to go to some lawyer. So I will wait just. And also my second daughter, because she is now up age, they can't also go with us. Amal's second daughter is 19 and considered an adult, so they can't apply to go to Germany together as a family. She needs to apply on her own. This is not how Amal imagined it would all play out. In Syria, actually, we have everything. We have uh, 
lovely home. We have a car, we have a money, and my children got in school, and we have a respect life. It's so difficult when you leave to another town, in different language, different people, and just leave. Live, yeah, it's difficult. How everyone lives in another town. It's very difficult for any mother and father. And after then, I, I think it's not the end of the life. We must continue. We should be strong because our children take the strong from us. But with the Balkan route now closed, Amal faces a difficult decision. Stay in Turkey or try to cross into Greece, where she won't be able to travel further and is likely to get stuck in the system like so many others. Naris El Shalavi is a Syrian who made the crossing from Turkey to Greece three days before the border with Macedonia shut at Idomeni. He's been in a camp on the Greek mainland for more than six months, waiting to hear if he'll be relocated to another country in the EU. He was supposed to have heard back more than three months ago, but of the thousand or so migrants in the camp who've applied, only a hundred so far have been relocated. Uh, I'm here alone. My family is in Syria. I wouldn't call it a life here, because I, I never see anything of this in my whole life. This situation is very bad. I would, I would even return to my country, to Syria, under the bombs, under war, and under anything, but not this situation. We came here, the, they told us that European country, European people, that there's a justice, there's a democracy. But we came and see almost nothing. our next episode, when a temporary situation becomes permanent. Like last year in Europe, it was said 10,000 children went missing. But we know through facts from Oxfam and Red Cross that over 10,000 children in Italy alone are unaccounted for from last year. Migration Trail is part of a 10-day real-time online experience. Go to our interactive website, migrationtrail.com, for more infographics on the issues you've heard in this episode. While you're there, you can follow reconstructed journeys based on real experiences and to see migration mapped in a whole new way. This podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and our website, migrationtrail.com. Migration Trail is made by Alison Killing, Josie Gardner, Sarah Sayi, Thomas Levistro, Asha Kamen and Anique C. Narration by me, Marnie Chesterton. Additional fact-checking by Benjamin Thomas White. The music was composed and performed by Bora Yoon. The Migration Trail Project has been funded by a Wired and the Space Creative Innovation Fellowship, the Creative Industries Fund NL, the Netherlands Film Fund, Dutch Media Fund and Arts Council England. Further support has come from the Fine Acts Foundation, Autodesk and Battersea Arts Centre.